0: social determinants of health are more powerful than your genetic code which Mm. for our very scientism kind of world that we're in this like pseudo religion that science is the be all and end all of absolutely everything it's a really hard thing to wrap your head around that hang on but i thought my genetics you know that's the blueprint for how i show up in the world but what is actually more true than that it's it's absolutely pertinent but what's more true than that is that your postcode is more important, where you live. And the reason for that is because we're pack animals, we're social creatures and we judge our, what we should do and what we shouldn't do, what we want. A lot of things we don't even actually want because we want them. We want them because the community that love and accept us want them. i have had clients like this where they're overweight. And then we do a bit of digging on the psychology and realize that, oh, if I lose this weight, I'm gonna be out of place in my own family.
1: Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I want to bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. Welcome back to the live damn well podcast. So we're kind of straying away from the, you know, is red meat healthy is red meat bad kind of thing. We're taking a little break. So I wanted to get on actually I'll share who I was trying to interview for the for the kind of more plant based perspective side of things. And it's Dr. Hamilton Rochelle, who is one of the leading nutrition experts on, you know, plant based versus animal based diets basically in the world of muscle building so he published a landmark study which I hope to share with you pretty soon we just rescheduled for sometime then in the next few weeks so stay tuned for that one if you are a regular listener of this podcast or if you really just like this interview then please be sure to check the link below so you can buy me a nice little coffee to support the show to help keep this going you can also check out our sponsor of this episode which is Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is on a mission to make healthier eating more accessible and more affordable. They're basically a whole foods except they're a fraction of the price and they deliver to your door. So you can get cosmetics, you can get supplements, you can get health foods, you can get you know basically processed and packaged foods that are actually pretty healthy and they have very very clean ingredients and they're mostly all organic, non-GMO, all that good stuff. So highly recommend you check them out. The link will be in the description. You guys will get a 40% discount on your first order. And finally, check out my book on Amazon, Return to Human. Link will be in the description as well. Now on with the show. Today I have with me Maddie Lansdowne, host of the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast, a scientist, nutritionist, and health coach with a quite an extensive background, which we'll get into pretty soon. Um, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing?
0: good thanks george i appreciate the invite and i'm really looking forward to this conversation as we were just sort of chatting before i've checked out a bunch of your shows and you're doing some really cool work man so i'm um, i'm excited to be a part of it
1: thank you appreciate it just so just so we're clear it's it's jorge not george it's a common jorge. mistake
0: totally man so yeah. that's uh, what's your origin latin then
1: yes mexican
0: yeah i spent some time in mexico
1: oh that's sick
0: so i'm a big fan of mexico actually i was looking at flights just this morning to mexico oh really <laughs> Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, um, I haven't been down there in a while, but um, a lot of family down there. So, I really wanted to start out, uh, kind of what we were talking about just before I hit record. We're bombarded by so much information, right? Red meat is bad, and then a new study comes out, and then the headline is plant based diets are the best diets for health, right? And then we have people saying, you know, MDs saying totally different things, like <clears throat> you have the Stephen Gundrys of the world saying, you know, lectins are bad, we should avoid them, um, and then you have you know, like Dean Ornish is saying that no, actually, these plant foods are the most healthy foods, and we should avoid red meat and saturated fat is bad. So we're just totally like normal people, even scientists are like, wow, there's just so much information out there. How do we cut through all this stuff? And so the way I see it, there are really two main hurdles, right? It's it's people are really confused, the general public is really confused, and and it's it's easy to tell someone, hey, you know. You might want to think about putting that cheesecake down. It's not the healthiest option, um, but the problem is that it's hard for people to make the sustainable behavior change once they get that information, right? And so that's what we're going to be diving into today. But first, tell me a little bit about your background. You went from a degree in forensic science to a vaccine formulator to working in a cancer hospital for several years, and then now you're in nutrition and health coaching space. What Walk me through that.
0: Yeah, sure. It's a bit, it's fairly diverse, I guess, for being relatively young, you know, my 30s. Um, But basically, I grew up in the countryside, my mum was a nurse. um, And we were in a small enough town that I used to go to work with my mum on a daily basis. So I didn't go to um, any kind of play group or anything like that. I just went to the hospital. Um, and, um, I just ran around the hospital hanging around with sick and dying people, but, you know, three-year-old Maddie or four-year-old Maddie had no idea that they were sick and dying. I was just stoked that I got to hang out with these people that were super interested because, you know, their families were either not really present or burdened by them and, and whatever. So I actually developed this really positive relationship with the idea of the hospital and medicine and my mum being a nurse. And, and then I sort of, as a teenager became an athlete Um, And was almost a part of the national swimming team here in Australia um, and did a lot of uh, sort of high level competitive swimming. So I sort of started to understand nutrition a little bit there, but it's funny now reflecting that I would not uh, eat the way that I did then if I was to have kids go through swimming. You know, now we know so much more about nutrition. It was back in the days where you'd sit on the, you know, just before a race, you'd be smashing pasta you know, like an oh, hour yeah. before you swim type thing. And I would do things very differently now, but, um, and then at university, yeah, I did forensics, but the, the, the real trigger for me to look at nutrition early on was, um, that I lived with two strength and conditioning coaches of the Geelong cats. Now that won't mean much to people that are not in Australia, but we have an, our own Australian football league, um, which is a really unique, um, type of sport, uh, compared to like soccer or, or American football. And so, The Geelong Cats at this particular time were the most elite team in the country, um, and that's our national sport. And so I was living with the strength and conditioning coach of of that team. So our most elite athletes in the country, basically. And um, I learned a lot from them because they were just basically Photoshopped. They looked phenomenal. They were just ripped. Everybody that came over to our house, they ran a gym out of our house as well. So every day, all day, there was somebody working out or there were people hanging out on the couch that were super ripped, super lean, super buff. um, And yeah, super high performance level out of their bodies. And I was still at university. Those guys were about five or seven years ahead of me. So I was still at uni basically eating beer and pasta because I was broke um, and thinking, oh, these guys are, you know, are so ripped and learning about what they eat and, and learning about supplements too. And so that was the real trigger for me that food and the what you get out of your body is not just about athletes. And we're kind of sold that idea that unless you're going to do some kind of perform- physical performance activity, be it sport or competitive sport or a marathon or something like that, then food is just food and and that was the real trigger that oh actually we all function every day and the amount of performance that we get out of our body is dependent on what we put in whether that be to go to work and be present with like you know your work and get a lot out of your your brain that day or whether that be to look after your kids and not be annoyed by them because they're like you know driving you up the wall because your you know your mental capacity is is lower because you haven't eaten well whatever it is you know like we we get more out of our body by what we choose to put in and so from there, yeah, I finished up my degree and I did um, a bit of an honors degree in nutritional epigenetics, uh, where we looked at met- lipid metabolism in elite athletes. Um, and the company that I was working for was customizing um, powders, nutritional powders, based on genetic- epigenetic profiling. So it was super specific stuff, but again, only stuff that really is necessary for people trying to get absolute peak performance out of their body. Um, so, but obviously learned a lot. And then from there, I, yeah, I moved into vaccine formulation was pretty much just the first job. Uh, mm-hmm. basically just my first job in science. I applied for it, got it, learned a lot there too. Um, you know, I was sort of early twenties there and then, then moved across. Um, I had a few different sort of short term, six month, 12 month contracts in different places and then ended up in the cancer hospital for about, um, yeah, seven years and wrapped that up uh, in 2020 to just run my own show basically. So uh but the cancer hospital was the real trigger for me to uh become a nutritionist and yeah do things a different way
1: yeah you know you said something interesting which i think actually a lot of people probably still believe which is food is just food right food is <laughs> it's just you know it's calories right that's all yeah. that really matters and uh this is something that i started to learn with you know my first job as becoming a health coach um is there's so much more to food than it just being something that kind of just gives your body calories to keep, you know, to keep the lights on basically in your own body, right? It's, you know, it has to do with your, with your energy, your mental focus. Um, you know, it has to do with, um, your risk of developing certain diseases, you know, how well you keep your blood sugar regulated can, can help with anxiety, um, can help with sleep. So it is so much more than just, food is just food. Calorie is just a calorie. Right. And I think people are starting to wake up to that. Um, But, you know, we also talked about before the show um, like the big rocks and the small rocks, right. Which we'll also get into more, but like Mm -hmm. nutrition is one of those foundational things, which can, can have such a profound effect and kind of branch out into so many other areas of your life.
0: Yeah, no, you're totally right. And I think as old school and regurgitated as this line is, you are what you eat is absolutely true. Every cell in your body is actively replaced over a period of time and your bones actually are totally replaced over a seven year period. So literally everything you put in over a period of time becomes the body. So the idea that, um, you know, food is just food is that's just a fallacy. It's a total fallacy because the, everything that you are mentally, spiritually, physically, is based on the fuel that you put in. And that's not just food, that's uh, the oxygen you breathe and, and whatever pollutants might be in the air, that might be the things you breathe in from the apartment that you live in. Uh, that also is the ideas that are planted in your mind because those those ideas go from you know words from somebody else or, or something you might read and they implant as physical electrical impulses in your mind and your capacity to to deal with all of those things, whether it be the air you breathe, the water you drink, the food you metabolize, um all go towards rebuilding the body and if we're building um, a house of cards uh which a lot of people are because they're sort of moving forward on the idea that food is just food as long as i feel full and i wake up tomorrow that's basically the prerequisites for you know food is good enough then unfortunately we're building a house of cards and and there's evidence of that everywhere that's why podcasts like this have to exist because we're in a world of people that are overweight dying and you know not just dying but like spending half their life dying like spending like 10 20 30 40 years on medication slowly deteriorating and slowly losing quality of life over a really long period of time um and that's well one that's no way to live but two um if we keep perpetuating this idea we're almost at a point where most people live their life in a way that they they'll get to an age maybe maybe even now it's as young as 40 but usually it's about 50 plus where people are just waiting for a diagnosis. They're just, they're just like, and which thing will I get basically? And that's because of taking a lifetime of of, uh, the, the attitude that you've taken for the lifetime of your food consumption is that food is just food.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, that was beautifully put. Um, And I think one of the things that's the most sad and it's, I mean, it's definitely something that I've experienced and I experienced before I really, really dove into health and nutrition Mm -hmm. is that I didn't know what feeling good felt like anymore. Right. It was like, I, I mean, you know, to be fair to my parents, I didn't get the worst genetics, but I definitely had (laughs) some room for improvement there that mom and dad. So, um, I had really bad insomnia. I still kind of struggle with that. I'm trying to get to grips with that. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I had some food intolerances that I definitely didn't even know about until pretty recently, actually. And so Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, being bloated and, you know, having real digestive discomfort and just having brain fog, I thought all those things were normal. And I thought, you know, I'm eating a, you know, vegetarian-ish diet. I'm eating a lot of vegetables. And I, I mean, I kind of feel like crap, but it's normal. It's comfortable crap, because this is how I usually feel. And so it kind of got to the point where, I was in a sense underwater for so long that I didn't know what fresh air felt like. And so Mm. I think that's the case with many people is they don't know really what it feels like to be optimally healthy or even just healthier than they are.
0: I think you're exactly right. And there's another element to that. And so for anyone that's ever done a health degree, at least here in Australia, you, um, you always do a public health, um, part of that degree and, everyone that's done those degrees, whether it be science, whether it be nutrition, dietetics, you know, medicine, everybody does that subject where you learn that social determinants of health are more powerful than your genetic code, which Mm. for our very, um, science, scientism kind of world that we're in this like pseudo religion, that science is the be all and end all of absolutely everything. It's a really hard thing to wrap your head around that. Hang on. But I thought my genetics, you know, that's the blueprint for how I show up in the world. But what is actually more true than that, it's it's absolutely pertinent, but what's more true than that is that your postcode is more important, where you live. And the reason for that is because we're pack animals, we're social creatures, and we judge our what we should do and what we shouldn't do, what we want. A lot of things we don't even actually want because we want them. We want them because the community that love and accept us want them. Um, and, and that that's where a lot of, you know, successful people talk about this phase. They went through where they realized um, that the things that they wanted weren't actually fulfilling because they didn't truly want them. It's just because the pack wanted them. And so the same thing with what you're saying regarding um, it's normal to feel unwell is that when, and I've had clients like this, where they're overweight and then we do a bit of digging on the psychology and realize that, Oh, if I lose this weight, I'm going to be out of place in my own family. Mm-hmm. And that, that is more powerful than, than anything your genes could give you because it dictates your belief systems and then therefore your behaviors. And then you're just burdened with this knowledge that you're doing the wrong thing for yourself, but you're going to keep doing it anyway. And that's even more dreadful on the system because you've got this like this sort of depression that sets in that I'm, I'm not strong enough to do what I need to do because the pack will reject me. Um, and so we've got this social element, which has been well studied in medicine uh, for many, many decades now that this, yeah, the social elements of health are far more impactful. So when, when we're in this 2022 situation where everybody's unwell of course, you're not going to go to extreme extents to to change that because everybody around you reflects the same reality. And so, you know, it's like the Tony Robbins thing, right? Um, That you're the average of your five closest friends or your five closest connections. And it's exactly the same with health. And I had a a mate of mine. um, So we locked down for a fair amount of time here in Melbourne and uh, we caught up after a long time. uh, And and he said, I talked to him about this before, and he said that he caught up with another group of friends um, and he said, Matty, you're totally right. I caught up with my other mates. And I, say, I said in my own head, at least I'm not as fat as that guy. And he's like, that's the totally wrong way to think about it. You know, at least I'm not yeah. as sick as that person. And the, right. the, the word that's missing there is yet. Because if the group holds that health status, obviously the group will move towards sicker and sicker outcomes. So I think it's really useful for people to know that Yeah, as as much science as might ever exist about your genome or epigenetics or the nutrition or magnesium you can extract from spinach, the people you spend time with
1: is far more important. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know if you know, um, Dr. Paul Saladino. He's a big in like the carnivore space. Um,
0: Yeah, totally. He's got that um, kale is bullshit, (laughs)
1: man. Yes, he does. (laughs) Lately, he's been coming out with everything is bullshit mantra, but (laughs) it's just kind of funny. But uh, anyway, yeah, regarding the social factors is greater than genetics piece, or at least plays a much bigger role than we, you know, give it um, uh, kind of credit for Um, with relation to the Blue Zones. The reason I bring up Paul Saladino is because He's kind of pushed back on this idea that the blue zones, for those who don't know, they're these kind of regions in the world, these kind of hotspots of longevity, where you see disproportionate amount of of longevity of people living longer, healthier lives without or with much less chronic disease than we see, like centenarians Mm -hmm. being much more common, right? And so... The, one of the one of the things that's uh, that the proponents of these blue zones, um, I forget the name of the, of the person who um, I think it's Dan Buettner. Um, this idea that they are the blue zones, they are this hotspot of longevity because of the plants that they eat, mm-hmm. and so. They make that a huge piece of what the blue zones are. And Paul Saladino yeah. says, eh, hold on a second here. Like it's not just the fact that they're eating plants. And he even refutes the fact that they're eating that many plants and they actually do consume a large part of their diet is it does come from animal products, right? But mm-hmm. another big part of it, which he and Dr. Zach Bush has been another one that says, no, you know, it's like we're really overlooking the social thing. It's not as much the fact that they're eating these clean, healthy foods, but they have a strong sense of community. I mean, we saw this with the pandemic, right? Like we were so separated from the people that we loved and loneliness is not just something that has indirect effects on our health. We now know that there are direct negative effects of loneliness on our health, whether it be, you know, in the form of anxiety, depression, increased cortisol, um, a, a decrease in the, in the happy hormones as you call them. Um, and so I, I totally agree with you. This, this social factors are, are a huge piece of our health.
0: Yeah. Well, and I would totally agree as well on the blue zone thing because any, the human body is so complex. In fact, I, I just wrote a social media post, with a picture of your metabolism from a molecular standpoint. And it's like, it's like looking at a map of like Mexico city. It lit like your metabolism (laughs) is, is so absolutely complex, thousands upon thousands of (laughs) metabolic reactions. And so the reason that I I reference that is because it's the same with human health. If that's just your metabolism, there's a heap of other stuff going on in this human body. And so to be able to just come out and say plants, and just stop there is just naive, right? It's so complex. So plants might be a part of it, but as we're learning more and more, is, and and as cultures have known for thousands of years and, and seems we seem to have forgotten it for the last 150 or so is that the human experience is wholesome not it's not just about food it's about stress managing stress it's about having fun it's about having healthy relationships it's about you know knowing that the the location you get your food from is good it's about moving around the land and sourcing different types of food at different times of the year to expose your metabolism to different types of input and yeah. and even just this general level of complexity is far more than just nutrition right because there's plenty of people that you could cycle through all sorts of different dietary philosophies or ideologies and produce absolutely zero outcomes but for most of the women that i work with if you fix their stress it it doesn't matter the diet you've got them on that they will sort heaps of their stuff out because of that perpetual cortisol that's been going on for decades so i think yeah i think we're omnivores i'm very much Mm -hmm. a believer that you know we do both And the proportion, you know, that somebody should eat whether it be animal products or plants is going to vary from person to person and actually vary throughout that individual's life as well. I mean, how great would it be to just have one diet that you could eat forever and never have to think again. Awesome. Amazing. I would love (laughs) that. Um, But it's particularly for women too, that go through, um, you know, childbirth and then they go through perimenopause and then postmenopause women. It's particularly unique. It's a little bit more stable for men. Um, So we're lucky in that regard. However, you know stress there's plenty of men walking around with really solid beer bellies Mm. and that's that's overeating and cortisol it's stressed right so um so yeah get, coming back to the blue zones i think that yeah acknowledging the fact that many of those blue zones were governed by some type of religion as well which forced relaxation days um and there's a whole rabbit hole on the other side of the blue zone research about the seventh day Adventist church um and how that was involved in sort of cultivating these ideologies around plant-based diets and you know they're the major owners and contributors to Kellogg's and Sanitarium and now we've got this right. world of got this world of plant-based messaging which seems you know when you go down the rabbit hole you can kind of be like oh is this actually a religious ideology that's been mm-hmm. disguised as health um, right. maybe that's a conversation for another day but but the point is that yeah just to say food is the answer is just naive i think in the complexity of the human body when stress matters um your relationships matter the the people you hang around matter um and then of course food does matter
1: yeah that's so crazy uh i think i just learned that um you know kellogg's wanted to prevent masturbation and sexual practices with cornflakes it's so crazy to me because i grew up eating cornflakes for breakfast right and it's like (laughs) i learned that like a couple of years ago and i'm like oh wow we used to eat like steak and eggs for breakfast like that was pretty normal until we we got hit with this no fat is bad meat is bad animal products are bad oh here you go there's this replacement we have and we're the ones that are the main manufacturers of it how convenient right
0: Oh, totally. And John Harvey Kellogg was of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Right. Um, And so, um, yeah, his idea or their idea was that um, because plants moved through the digestive tract and particularly the original cornflakes, because they moved through the digestive tract quickly, it meant that there was less um, food matter sitting in the gut that was then pushing on the prostate. So that's why it was about Mm. the masturbation. They thought that if they could give uh, young boys food that moved through the digestive system quickly and didn't put pressure on the prostate that they would lower the um likelihood of you know being testosterone rising and being a teenage male which you can't (laughs) stop um so but however we do know now that after long periods of eating um carbohydrates refined sugars with an absence of protein you're naturally going to see a decline in testosterone human growth hormones so whilst they had the, the wrong mechanism of action it, yes. long-term will still produce the same outcome, which yeah. eventually lower testosterone and human growth hormone, lower libido.
1: Oh man. Yeah. I didn't know that about the mechanism of action. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That was the idea. So they didn't want to put physical pressure with, um, like heavy animal-based products in the digestive tract on yeah. the prostate, which they believed would stimulate
1: erections basically. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting that they, they kind of still got the outcome they wanted, except it was just, (laughs) you know, instead of it being something like related to prostate and pushing on the prostate, it was, well, you're not getting the micronutrients you're getting from meat. You're also not getting the saturated fat, which is the backbone of, uh, steroid hormones. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, total, total... melted my
0: brain a little bit. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, perfect let's get right into you know your specialty now diet and behavior um, this is one of the biggest reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast because this is the struggle I think um, I think people are too and you know myself included for a while it was like oh you know this is a problem of education we just have to educate the population and everyone's gonna be healthy and it's like well no as you put it in some of your interviews, we have all the information we could ever want, right? We have Google and we could pull up all the information we possibly wanted, but that's not leading to a healthier population. I mean, we see it in front of our own eyes, right? So it's tough. Needless to say, it's tough for people to change their behaviors. So, Mm -hmm. you know, what are some of the, I guess, some of the methods that you start to use in order to actually break a habit that's very unconscious and doesn't require a lot of energy into you know breaking a habit which actually requires a lot of energy. How do you start to do that?
0: Yeah, good question. There's a song Breaking a Habit by Lincoln Park. And as you said that, it just triggered a memory from my teenage years to that that <laughs> album. <laughs> um, but um that's such a good question. And I think a good it's good that we've already talked about the social determinants of health because often uh when we try and be different to the pack, we're judged by the pack and anyone that's had to make a change in their diet or wanted to give not drinking on friday night ago um knows that if they go and hang out with the same pack the same tribe um they'll be like why aren't you drinking like are you sick or what are oh, you gluten-free now what, what does that mean you're a health person like um and so i think it's really important first to understand um, before you can break a habit, you need to know why it exists. Um, And I think a lot of conventional diet culture focuses on like the future forward movement creation Mm -hmm. and tomorrow. Um, And we can't, we can't change today or tomorrow if we don't know why today came to exist because Mm -hmm. we don't know. Again, it's like the mechanism of action. Like we don't know what we're changing. Um, it's like having a flat tire, but not being able to see the tires and be like the engine's broken down. It's like, no, it's, it's actually just the tire. Um, so what I would encourage people to do and what I do with people is that we, we have to monitor our normal life. Um, and we have to monitor like, okay, what, what happens? When does it happen? What emotions come up when it happens? And, and many people are confronted by that process of emotions um, because they've never looked into them before. And I often get people come back the first time and say, I don't know what I'm feeling. Uh, right. So, a lot of we, we're not really in a culture that supports this idea of emotional awareness. Most of us weren't raised by emotionally intelligent or aware parents. They were all doing the best that they could um, at the time. But we're lucky now with the internet and podcasts and conversations like this that we can get literate in our body's feedback and our emotions. And so, it's first and foremost about being like, what is happening right now? And so, once you can start connecting the patterns that happen in your daily life, uh, then you can actually see where the problem is. Instead of just being like, my life's a shit show, we can just be like, okay, where in your life are things not going to plan or are things falling apart? Because once you know the the exact piece of the engine to replace then we can work on that rather than just trying to use willpower to behave differently. Um, so I think that's the, that's the place to start is reflecting on your, your now and your past. And, and for some people that will dig up trauma that will dig up coping mechanisms Um, and a lot of people use sugar as a coping mechanism or poor eating habits to manage their emotions, to be able to uh, soothe themselves, to feel safe, to reduce stress. Um, However, we know high stress all the time is not helpful, but soothing it and bringing it down with a food that doesn't help your body is just putting a different type of stress on the body. Um, So, we're really just transferring it from like, cortisol-based stress to insulin and sugar-based stress, right? Um, Neither of which are helpful helpful long-term. So once we establish that knowledge and awareness, which is, that step is crucial because even if you don't do anything with it at that time, once you have practiced self-awareness, you can't unknow it. You can't go back to not knowing why you're doing things. You can't go back to just your old habits without the knowledge of what's happening. And that allows you at some stage, and if you're being supported, usually that stage is the next step, but at some stage to be like, I'm so sick of being aware of where things are falling down that now I'm willing to have, I've developed enough courage to be able to go in and change those things. Now, the other thing that conventional diet culture does is that it basically says, just pretend those things won't happen in the future, Um, right? Those things that trigger us, those things that cause stress, those things that cause problems or lead us down the path of emotional eating or having a fight with our partner. Maybe we're stuck on a loop, you know, in a a fight in a relationship or that just keeps happening over years. And so it's not until we have the courage to do that differently and know the parts of that that need to change that we can actually change it. Once we're there, we then have to find a heap of alternatives and I call it the routine swap-out list. Um, and so we find a routine swap-out that we we take out the unhelpful behavior and put in a slightly more helpful behavior because one, you're a human and triggers are going to keep happening. And if this has been a pattern in your life, it's pretty it's pretty likely, it's highly likely, in fact, that this is going to happen maybe next week, next month, next mm-hmm. year. And so if we don't have uh, a system that supports <laughs> diluting or dissolving the power of that over time then it's just going to keep recurring because we're going to use willpower two weeks later willpower will run out we'll default to who we were before so we need to support the transition out of this by slowly taking the power out of it by using different routine swap out so that when the trigger happens instead of going to the ice cream it might be get a hug from somebody and go for a walk around the block or it might be, you know, it might be a number of different things. And the list, I've got a massive list that's over 300 things long now because um, I've worked with, you know, a couple of hundred different women um, and, and slowly put together this master list. And it might look like yoga or breath work or even sex or even video games or all sorts of different things. And as you move along the stages, that routine swap out progressively becomes more and more healthy. In, you can't on day one take out ice cream and swap it with kale it's not going to produce the same emotional support that the ice cream previously gave you. So you have to make a uh, like a step-by-step progression sort of one tweak a week is what I call it. Make these small changes each week where you slowly move to the point where you manage stress in an insanely healthy way that you're like, Mm -hmm. you can manage your triggers. You see them coming. You can create space and boundaries and maybe do meditation or yoga to solve the issue or resolve the emotion. But, You can't do that on day one. And I think conventional diet culture says just be different from now on. And it just doesn't work, right?
1: I think it's really interesting what you said about the importance of understanding your unconscious habits, because that's what they are. They're pretty unconscious. And that's why, you know, people seek out health or seek out health coaches and health professionals because it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, help me. I don't know what's going on. Um, And so it kind of takes you the health professional or the health coach kind of being a mirror to them and kind of showing them look like this is what i'm hearing have you noticed that you do this um and things like that where they actually start to be like wow i wow this is what this is how i'm sabotaging my own health um and so i think it's 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 interesting and i also think it's really important to understand how you got to where you are you know what worked for you in the past what hasn't worked for you in the past and if you don't know well then let's just look at the present what are you doing right now that's hurting or helping your health
0: yeah absolutely and if you if you can't identify those things which a lot of people can't because as you said they're so automated in the subconscious part of the brain um, and our brain is strategic that way anything that it can shortcut it will because it spends Mm -hmm. energy so our brain's really smart like that it'll automate processes and take out all the little little steps every time we do it and then go to sleep at night our brain will process that memory of doing that task and be like oh we've done that a bunch of times we can automate that a little more for next time and the perfect example is learning how to drive um is that in the beginning it's really in the conscious mind it's like you're looking at all the mirrors you're you know you're a bit overwhelmed it's like you're checking the speedometer and if you're in a manual car you know it's like you got to look at the revs and like when you change gears and and there's a lot going on Mm -hmm. and then in a few years time you can drive a hundred miles basically asleep because it's so automated and it's exactly the same for our food behaviors our nutrition behaviors our relationship behaviors all of these things and so that awareness step um, it's a little uncomfortable because we have to go into the unconscious and kind of pull it out of automation which is confronting because our brain put it into automation because it was so heavy and clunky to deal with in the conscious mind so then we kind of drag it in front of us again and we're like oh whoa that's i'm doing this why am i doing this to myself and it's yeah it can be kind of overwhelming
1: yeah yeah absolutely and you know going back to you you talked about these uh behavior switches that you do kind of switching out one behavior for another um this is something that i also spend you know several sessions with my clients as well is you know this idea of of the happy chemicals of dose i call it dopamine oxytocin serotonin and endorphins right these are all the things that kind of come together and i think of them sort of as nutrients for the nervous system in a way because yeah they, they kind of serve to make us feel whole but not not in the way that nutrients kind of make up our cell membranes and all this stuff but it's it's good for our it's necessary for our emotional health and so if you are kind of pressing on the dopamine lever a lot with, you know, these hyper palatable foods, like the, you know, the cheesecakes, the really high fat, high sugar foods uh, it, it's really easy to do that. And, you know, it's, it's not that I'm, I'm one to judge. That is really the easiest things to go for in our society that in our cell phones. And, you know, it, it's just so convenient to go for that dopamine hit because it's right there and it's easily accessible. But when people, you know, want to make that change, then it's, okay, what parts of the dose are you actually neglecting that your nervous system is not getting? Because in a sense, by kind of pressing too hard on that dopamine lever, you are kind of neglecting the other ones, whether it be the serotonin, whether it be the oxytocin, the social connection. And so mm-hmm. what is it in your life that you're not getting that You know you're kind of substituting out for a sort of cheap substitute which would be you know the junk food or whatever other unhealthy habit
0: yeah well and it's really i really like how you phrase that as um nutrients for the nervous system i think that's a really apt way to position it but um, i think yeah the society that we're in that's focused on dopamine hits over and over and over again is is unfortunately really toxic um to well the evolution of the species
1: I wanted to kind of segue into emotions and, and food choices, because that that is, you know, almost exactly what we're talking about. It's, it's pretty common for people to have food as a coping mechanism, because it's very, very easily available. So tell me about the role of our emotion and behavior change and and how do we get around these unhealthy coping strategies because like you said you know i've had clients that say well you know it just it just doesn't do it for me doing this breathwork thing it's just not doing it for me like like this um you know piece of bread is doing it for me so how do we get around that
0: it's a good question i think um realizing that sugar is an addictive psychoactive substance is a good place to start because you know a lot of people see us health people as just people that that just want to live differently. It's just, it's just a choice. It's just like, oh, you guys want to do that? I d- I'll do me over here. Um, and the difference is like saying to a heroin addict, um, oh I just don't do heroin you know it's you know or or no nah, I'm going to stay over here and do heroin and people think that's an extreme example but they only think it's extreme because heroin is illegal um, you know there's been lots of addic- addiction studies with sugar and it's widely um, you know socially acceptable and go back to the, the you know social element as well as that if everyone around you is eating these foods and cooking this way or purchasing foods this way then you're going to learn those behaviors and additionally in, in regards to emotions is that um, you know the same thing if you see people around you and particularly your parental figures when you're younger manage their emotions in a particular way or manage your emotions mm-hmm. um, and for instance um, you know the classic one is walking around the supermarket with a you know a child that is like screaming at the top of their lungs and the parent says if you stop crying Um, you'll get a lollipop or i will buy you that chocolate thing if you don't express this emotion right Right. Um, and so if we think about that we can often think about many memories for ourselves where we were bribed with sugary foods as children and you just have to go to the supermarket and see it happen every day now i'm not sitting here as as a man saying mothers need to do things differently However, what I am saying is that the food options we've got available and the strategies we use to um, encourage our children to manage their emotions in a particular way have long-term consequences. And in those moments, we connect uh, an emotion to a food outcome, right? And mm-hmm. so, like, for instance, if we're told to not express our, our tears, our anger, our whatever it is, uh, in, the, in the aim that sugar will, we will get sugar, one that's we know that getting that sugar is going to make us feel better. Um, and therefore we continue to practice that over and over again to the point that we become teenagers and we use the bribe in the other way. We say, Hey, mom, if, if I'll do this, if you give me that, right. Um, Then we become adults and we repeat the same behavior by, you know, going to the supermarket when we're sad or, you know, buying things that are just and justifying the fact that they're, oh, they're, they're discounted today. Like, so, you know, I'll be able to, surely I'll have a a situation in the next two weeks where I'll be emotional. Um, And so we're doing all of this managing of of our emotions with a substance that is addictive. Um, And so when it comes to people that say, yeah, I, I, I don't get as much out of breath work as I do you know, the addictive substance, of mm-hmm. course you don't, like, I wouldn't expect you to. Um, yeah. But that's why this is challenging, because we're, mm-hmm. we're literally, it's like saying to an alcoholic, um, you know, just stop drinking. There's a, ch- there's a challenging process that's involved before you sort of get over the hurdle of, you know, of being on the other side of addiction. And the same with any drug and the same with food as well. And so additional challenge with sugar and and sugary foods or sweetened foods. and, And that includes savory foods. These days, it's not sweet or savory. It's sweet or sweet and salt. Um, and so they're, they're all refined sugars and carbohydrates in their own right. And so we're in a situation where it's socially acceptable. So you can do it and be a healthy person. You can not do it and be a healthy person. You can go to a birthday and do it. You can go to a birthday and not do it. So it's really kind of confusing. It's like, is it good or is it bad? You know, is it, when is it good? When is it bad? Which emotions is it good for? Which emotions is it bad for? Right? Because then we add in the social element, having cake at a birthday because you want to celebrate someone, that's probably not a bad experience, right? Right. And so that's, that's why I use the phrase mood food. I don't call food good or bad um, because that's, again, confusing to our nervous system, which is like, so at a birthday when I'm celebrating, cake is good, but on every other day, cake is bad. Like if we're sending these mixed messages to our to our brain, yeah. we're just gonna go with the easy option, which is I don't care, eat cake, <laughs> right? Um, and so we need to create some clarity. So mood food is like there's no judgment there. It doesn't go into a basket of good or bad or yes or no. And that when we go to yes or no or in or out or that's that goes towards all or nothing thinking, which is a, a lot of the people that I work with. Um, yeah, like I'm an all or nothing person. Either way going 110 miles an hour, or we're not going at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, my question to that is, has that strategy with nutrition ever worked? Mm. And the answer is no, because you and I are talking. Like, because the fact that we're in this conversation is that our, the average woman has been on 61 diets, right? 61. Um, and they, they still haven't achieved what they wanted to achieve. No matter if they're type A personality, type B, they're all in or all out, or they're cool with moderation. They, they still haven't produced the outcome. So we have to take away this... What, what is, has now kind of become a self-sabotage tool is the all-in or all-out thinking is like, I'm in, yep, let's do it, I'm nailing it. And then to justify a different set of behaviors when you want to eat sugar or you want to quit the diet or you want to change the behavior back to what it used to be is like, oh, no, nah, I'm out. I'm an all in or all out person. I just don't have time for this. Mm. The consequence to that is your body still suffers in the process. Your biology is still degraded by the choices you make when you're all out irrelevant of what, you know, how you've classified it or justify that set of behaviors. So we have to think of this as a continuum, like mm. it's a continuum and a spectrum um, and mood food allows for all of those things to be, To be true or false at the same time, to be in or out at the same time, and they're both okay. Um, and for an individual, you have to decide on whether or not there's also two categories, right? There's the moderators and then there's the abstainers. So there's a group of people that are really capable of moderating their sugar intake or their fast food intake. They can only have it once a week or once a once a month. And every other meal that they have is really, really quite healthy. There's other people who are who just can't. It's an addiction their cells are addicted to it their emotions are addicted to it and so we have to we have to first identify that and then set up a framework that supports either one of those personalities Um, and one one tool which is phenomenally simple that helps a lot of people is permission so if you take away the idea of um, saying bad food or you know you're not allowed to have that which is literally if you think about it just what your mum did to you 30, 40, 50 years ago, if you take the mother and the child and parent psychology out of your food and you be your own adult where you give yourself permission, the stigma of the food evaporates. It's gone because there's no parent telling you you can't have it and there's no child within you that's jumping up and down saying, I want it, I do what I want, right? And so part of the psychology that I use with people is this idea of the, the parent And child conversation, which is the tennis match that we all have in our mind when we're standing in the sugar aisle, the chocolate aisle, or, you know, at the fast food restaurant, it's do it, don't do it, do it, don't do it. So we've got to to take the power and the tennis ball off those tennis players because the child always wins. The child is the most emotional and the parent wants to nurture and love and support the child. So that's why it's, you know, often parents are easily manipulated by their children because they love them, right? And we have this same conversation in our own head is that the parent version of us ends up giving in to the child version of us because the child just wants to be loved and cared for and protected and we want to give everything to the child. But we know if you give everything to a child, they end up being spoiled and ungrateful. And so that's not helpful. So we have to introduce this third voice, which helps regulate the emotional connection to food. And that's in between, that's the adult, right? And the adult is what you might call your higher self. For some people, it might be the voice of God. Um, it might be your intuition, but the adult is non-judgmental. It gives permission. It's realistic. It it uh, allows space for things to occur, and it also comes to agreements. It doesn't have rules or laws. It comes to an agreement. The agreement might be that at uh, at the birthday this weekend we're going to indulge. We're going to enjoy whatever's there, and then when we get in the car to go back home, we're going to return to our normal life, and that's what we agree to do. It's not. I have to do this and I have to do that and, and I can't do this and because all that's back into the psychology of parent-child and right. it never works out. So we have to come to a mature, stable place of the voice of the adult because once we embody that, we're much more likely to be able to regulate our emotions because the, the adult can categorize emotions, it can compartmentalize situations, it can draw boundaries, all in the name of self-respect. Um, and for some people, it's, it might be better to say self-love, mm-hmm. whereas the child-parent dynamic, there's, all there is is passion there, misguided passion of the child wanting to, you know, react in the moment to get what it needs right now, irrelevant of the long term, and the right. parents trying to limit the child only thinking of the long term. So mm-hmm. we're at either end of the spectrum, and that system breaks down.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I almost understand it like a, like a sort of meditation because you're kind of observing the two kind of mm. dichotomous sides of yourself, right? And you're being the sort of mediator which diffuses these strong emotions that both sides kind of have.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's a good way to think about it. Another way I um, encourage uh, clients to think about it is that they're sitting on the side of a highway. Um, and different things that go past they, like the cars, they might be a red car and it's it might have the label chocolate or um, give up on the diet or, you know, whatever it is. And it's the same idea as meditation is that if you practice sitting on the side of the highway and watching the cars go past, mm-hmm. you don't have to get in the car. You don't have to, right. you know, it doesn't have to pull over and you get in it and then you're stuck in it. It's just acknowledging like, Oh yeah, that thought of giving up on the diet today or, or having the chocolate has entered my awareness and, Now I can let it go. Or another good example is um, holding balloons. So helium filled balloons with all of those names on them and just being like, just letting go, just letting go of the one that says, you know, order KFC, go to McDonald's and just watch it disappear into the clouds Right. and, and, you know, really let, let, let it just go where it needs to go.
1: Yeah. And that's, I've heard you talk about that in your other interviews kind of um, well, the, one of the ways that I look at it is also looking at some of those thoughts as clouds kind of passing through and you're just kind of Mm -hmm. watching them go through you're not emotionally attaching to those clouds you're just letting them flow through with where the wind takes them and one of the things that you've talked about is you are not your thoughts you're not your emotions and that's i Mm -hmm. think sometimes that's a little bit people kind of take that as like woo woo but uh, i think it's absolutely true in my experience it's don't trust everything that comes out of your head or in your head right because it's not all true well
0: and one way to make that non-woo-woo for everyone is to think is to always to say have you had a horrific thought like a devastatingly horrific thought we all have yeah. Yeah. yeah where we wanted to hurt someone or we wanted to run somebody over in our car that like or you know we've all had them. And it's, it's like, you know, it's kind of taboo to say that stuff out loud, but every right. single human has had, had them. Right. Yeah, of course. And there's some, we've, we've even had thoughts where we're like, Whoa, I do not want to think that like yes. where we literally try and open our eyes and shake it out of our head because it's like, yeah. Whoa, why am I thinking like, that? am I a bad person? And that is a perfect example to show people you are not your thoughts because of an idea, a collection of ideas entered your mind and you decided that that's not for you. And right. so you you, you you actively did something to get it out of your head. It's the same thing with every emotion, with every thought, with every behavior set. You can choose yes. to engage with it or not. It is more difficult for the stuff that's in the automated subconscious mind. But the good news is you can pull it out and make a choice.
1: Yeah, no, Absolutely. I I want to talk about uh, social eating, because this is another one of Mm -hmm. the major hurdles, right? Uh, We we talk about like all these environmental triggers that come up for people. Um, And social eating is a huge one that comes up every single time in my sessions with people. So for example, if someone wants to follow a low carb diet, but you know, people are kind of stuffing themselves with pasta and French fries, what do they do in a social situation?
0: Well, this is where the the voice of the adult's really important. So first and foremost, you need to um, ensure that the people that you spend time with respect your decision because mm. they'll they will wear you down with judgment. Um oh, yeah. and, and it's happened to all of us where people have been like, go on, just have one, go on, go on. Or or, or it's been like, Oh, you're gonna be no fun anymore. Like, um, exactly. and there's a lot of there's a lot of um lot of husbands, unfortunately, that because men are often very stubborn when it comes to you know, behavior change of any kind, let alone talking about emotions. But um, there's a lot of husbands out there that actively sabotage their wives attempt to get healthy because they're like, oh, here we are on another diet. How much are we spending this time? Like, um, and, and I have a lot of clients who have that challenge with their husbands not being on board. Meanwhile, by the way, those husbands are also have all sorts of gut issues all sorts of weight issues, yeah. but they're, you know, they're, they're men, they're stubborn. Um, so the first step is to make sure the people you spend time with are on board are respectful of your decisions because they'll, they'll wear you down. And the way to do that is the first to talk to them about uh, your wellness. Cause a lot of people come in and they're like, Oh no, I'm going to diet. And that, that doesn't set the conversation up well. Um, so even though we shouldn't have to do this with our close people, unfortunately we have to, but we have yeah. to go in and say, look, I'm, I'm trying to change this thing because I really don't feel good in my body. I'm really unhappy with myself, whatever's true for you, you know, like I'm really unhappy. I've got low confidence. I felt terrible about myself for years and it's, you know, it's, it's time for me to make a change. Otherwise things are going to get really bad. Uh, And so like, you really have to frame what you're doing in regards to your wellness, because if you don't frame it in that real kind of way, um, people are not going to understand why you're making the decision and they're going to feel judged by your decision. Um, Like often people will judge you for things that they didn't have the courage to do or things that they um, attempted and failed. And so they're just projecting, right? So I would start first and foremost, when it comes to social eating with communication and and understanding how to communicate what you're doing so that you don't receive judgment and backlash um, in response. Now that won't, put all the fires out but it should put most of them out and if there's anybody after you framed that in regards to your wellness that still wants to judge you they're off the christmas card list get rid of them you didn't you do not want those people in your circle like and that's that's like a lot of people say yeah but it's my mom um and that gets into a really deep conversation of like well you can either live limited by your mother or you can make a different choice like um and that's a it's a really big one to get your head around for friends family intimate relationships um but yeah you've got you've got to you got to start with communication second to that is then set up a system um so if you know that you're going to go to an event where there's not going to be the type of food that you would eat you can either take food which feels uncomfortable in the beginning but once you change that behavior set it'll just be part of what your friends expect you to do it'll just be like oh yeah that per- Matty always brings food because he's, he's the nutritionist, you know, yeah. or, he, or he's into health or, or whatever yeah. it might be. It's not a strange thing. So you've kind of got to, as you change your own expectations of yourself, the expectations that other people have of you will change as well. And so mm-hmm. you'll, in the beginning, it'll be weird and for everybody and there'll, there'll be different things going on, but it'll get to a point where like people will just expect you to do what you do. It's just normal. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. Third to that is, um, knowing um knowing which alternatives are really useful and i've got one actually right here which is um sparkling water it's a really great strategy to to go to any type of event where there might be alcohol or beverages or anything like that because a lot of the time Um, you know, we kind of have this this obsession as humans of putting stuff in our mouth. It's like we either want to put stuff in or say words. It's like we're always bouncing (laughs) between these things. So in a social situation, people usually feel really uncomfortable with nothing in their hand. Um, And so having sparkling water, it gives you that sensation of putting something in your mouth and, you know, the bubbles. And it's like it's an entire experience. It's not just water per se. Mm. So that's a really good way to do it as well. And I guess in preparation making sure that you eat enough and get enough protein before you go to these events to reduce the likelihood of being driven by cravings or you know being driven by the desire to graze throughout the whole experience as well so i think yeah communication um nutritional alternatives uh as well are are really really important
1: no i yeah i think that's that's super interesting i hadn't thought about um having enough protein beforehand so that you're not just you know Seafood, eat food, kind of like you see the food yeah. that kind of is very palatable. And you know, you're like, oh, I'm actually really satisfied. I just had a really good meal and I don't feel the need to do that as much. And you're not so much um, emotionally hijacked by your cravings.
0: Absolutely. And even if you are, you do in, in uh, indulge in any of the food that's there, one, give yourself permission to do so. And, mm-hmm. and two, if you've had enough protein beforehand um, and everybody knows that you're, you've communicated your health journey to, to the right people, um, it's highly likely that you'll actually have less of those um, more you know, harmful foods to your body. Um, so it's like, you might be like, oh, just, just a little bit of cake rather than go on, let's do two or three type right. things, right? Which if that's your decision, that's okay. Give yourself permission to do so. And then when you get back in the car, return back to normal. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the social eating is a tricky one if you don't, I think, go through each of these steps.
1: Right. Yeah. And you know, something else that I found that uh, helps is um, this way of eating is making me feel better. In, in all ways, mentally and physically. And now I choose to value that more than this, you know, very transient pleasure of, you know, mouth pleasure. And so, yeah, because I feel that for many people I'm in college. Right. And so it's, it's interesting because I'm very into nutrition and health and I have some friends who are some friends who really aren't right. And for them, I've come to, I've come to notice that food is like this, the greatest pleasure for them. And mm. I used to think like, cause they would, you know, they would kind of poke fun at me. Like, Oh my God, you're eating a salad, dude. Like, go get a slice of pizza. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, you know, at first I was like, Oh, it's so annoying. Right. But then I started to notice like, like, no, they think that I'm depriving myself, but in my yeah. head, I'm not depriving myself in my head. I feel great. And I value how I feel day to day. And I value how I feel, you know, across the entire day, rather than just like this one period of time. And then later on, if I eat this, you know, whatever, if I eat this uh, really sugary food, I'll just crash later on. I don't value that anymore. And I think this, the taste now just is outweighed by, you know, Mm -hmm. this, this wanting to feel good and valuing that.
0: I think you're, you're totally right. Um, And I think just as you said there about like, you know enjoying this food is that a lot of people have the belief that healthy food is boring um or it's not interesting and that's because usually the person at home that's cooking um only knows how to do you know boiled cabbage or, or you know some like something super or salad is basically just lettuce right um, or you know or the things that you would pick off a mcdonald's burger um and so i think it's just it's just an illusion because Um, as long as you know how to use herbs and spices and there are so many herbs and spice mixes in the world. My sister actually runs a herb and spice company. Um, She's a chef and like, they're already pre-made. You just, you just tip them in like, and you can make healthy food taste 10 different ways. Like you make the same chicken or the same salad taste 10 different ways and really like really nourishing, really fulfilling as food in your mouth, you know, that mouth pleasure. It's just a different set of, it's not sweet. Basically. It's a different set of of taste receptors that are stimulated. So, and, and again, making sure that you actually, a lot of people reward themselves for eating healthy food. And I think it's kind of what you mentioned. It comes down to that, um, that deprivation, right? But if you flavor correctly, you won't feel a need to, to fulfill a deprivation because you won't be deprived. You'll be like, right. oh, that was delicious. Yeah. That was so good. Like I, yeah. I didn't even know healthy food could be this good.
1: Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Delicious and nutritious, right? It's you can, yeah. you can get both contrary to popular belief.
0: Oh, it's so, it's so easy.
1: Yeah. Uh, I wanted to transition now into uh, dopamine fasting. This is something yeah. I, I loved your episode on sleep because I think it was like top five ways to you know quick ways to to improve your sleep, right? And I was to to be honest, I was kind of expecting like, oh, don't don't do bright lights, like don't you know? Mm -hmm. And there was some of that, but but there was there were a lot of those tips were actually things that I hadn't thought of before. And one of them, the most important to me, was dopamine fasting. I had never heard of dopamine fasting in the context of of sleep, right? And so for me, completely anecdotal, but. I, as soon as I heard your episode, I was like, all right, I'm done with Instagram. I quit Instagram. <laughs> I've quit it for like five, six days. I've, I've kind of started to dose it in and see what is my minimum dose that it takes mm-hmm. for, to, to disrupt my sleep and my psychological health. Um, and so I've kind yep. of been toying with that. But the first night I just, I just fell asleep. And it's like, uh, that's that, that, that voice in my head, that's like, oh my God, you need to do this. And this like sharp cortisol response that I get from kind of like I tend to be kind of obsessive and, you know, perfectionistic with things that kind of just started to die down. And, you know, I, I was like, huh, that's weird. Like, what did I change? Well, the biggest thing that I changed was kind of getting rid of social media and really limiting my time on there. So could you kind of explain this concept of, of dopamine fasting?
0: Yeah, I'm a huge fan of dopamine fasting because just as we've been talking about with sugar, I think dopamine and sugar are, are- hugely connected and you, you probably should do both at the same time in order to because a lot of people end up um, substituting their sugar dopamine for netflix or for it's like they take one addiction out and they put in another one right. um, to replace it and so i think dopamine fasting you could even start with just dopamine fasting right it's just getting the practice of creating space between you and things that give you pleasure and so i guess for the listeners just a bit of context is that the idea is that um, in our brains, dopamine is—you know—we we or in our bodies, dopamine is released when we have success with things, and it's that positive hormone. It's regularly referred to as the happy hormone. Um, you know, when when you see someone you haven't seen in ages, or you you win a race, or you achieve something, you know, and you get that kind of sensation in your body of the endorphins releasing, and then uh, and so that, that's kind of the production of dopamine. However, what the sugar industry Um, And the tech industry have done very, very effectively is spend millions and millions of dollars um, with psychological engineers to hack your dopamine pathways because dopamine drives behavior. Being driven by dopamine means that we will both eat to have enough energy to then procreate because the species needs to be procreated. And so we moved from a place of, you know, um, where we needed to invest a lot of energy and time to produce dopamine. For instance, like think of hunting, right? killing a bear or killing a deer, um, you know, 500 years ago or 10,000 years ago was a huge investment of time, strategy, energy. You might have even been in a fasted state because you had the last kill was, you know, a little while ago. And so it was a really big investment. And so the dopamine result from that was like really fulfilling. It's like, whoa, we've achieved this thing. Now we can eat, we can feed the family. And in a really short amount of time without any genetic evolution at all, we've gone to a place where literally our phones are designed by psychological engineers to um, drip feed us our own dopamine with all of these notifications in micro amounts, every single minute or every single second of every single day. And every time there's a tweak to the interface of an app that you use, it's highly likely that that's driven by research around how to stimulate your dopamine even further, because it's the thing that it, it promotes addiction because they give you a tiny hit of dopamine, but it's not fulfilling enough. So you go back, mm-hmm. and you go back, and you go back, and you go back, and you you find yourself on this cycle. And most people now, it's it, social media has been around long enough. If we would go back to talking about the subconscious or unconscious mind, that you can catch yourself. And this was me when I had social media apps on my phone. You catch yourself. I'd just be going Facebook, Instagram, um, WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, what, and then I'd, I'd literally be like, "Whoa." I'm. I'm just. I'm not even here. I'm not. I'm totally checked out of going around that cycle, and that's because I'm literally addicted to the dopamine hit that just this behavior set Mm -hmm. produces in my brain, and so sugar also produces the same thing. It's a disproportionate amount of dopamine that you experience for something that gives you virtually no nutrition. Um, So we're on this sort of merry-go-round of dopamine in the absence of nutrition. So when we're talking about the health of the body, is that because we've used sugary foods to, you know, get to a state of health that we're not happy with. And that's also driven dopamine whilst at the same same time watching lots of Netflix, watching lots of YouTube videos, flicking through Instagram endlessly all day is mm-hmm. that we've got all of these stimulants uh, for dopamine coming in from all, all of the different angles. So... What we need to do is we it's really difficult because we're driven as human beings, we're driven by dopamine to behave in a certain way is that we actually need to start dopamine fasting. Now, this is not like dive in the deep end, like delete everything type mm-hmm. thing because you'll have a withdrawal. Just like every addiction, you'll have a withdrawal and you'll slingshot back. So you want to start and sleep is a good one to start with. So instead of going to bed with your phone, literally 10 minutes before bed, like when you go to brush your teeth, turn your phone off before you do that. And then go, and go over and brush your teeth and then go to bed. And then right. do that for a week and then create another 10, 15 minutes on, on the back of that. Turn your phone off half an hour before bed. And then you can progress with that. Not only will your sleep improve, but you're starting to regulate this dopamine. Now, the most susceptible time to this stuff we are is first thing in the morning when we wake up. Mm. So making sure the phone or Netflix or anything that's dopamine stimulating is not in your immediate reach. Is really important because re- remember we want to stimulate that ancient pathway of having to put in effort to produce dopamine right so if, if it's easy if there's no effort to produce dopamine you're going to end up in a situation with your health whether it be your mental health or your physical health where you're shortchanging yourself so we have to put in barriers to entry um, and so the, a good one is to remove tvs out of the room my, for me my phone lives turned off in the kitchen like the high kitchen cupboard where it's totally out of sight i literally would not like I only open that cupboard to get the phone. So the good thing is over time is that I end up often midday, one o'clock being like, oh, yeah, I haven't turned my phone on yet. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, I noticed, too, that as soon as it goes on, like productivity is out the window because mm. I'm back on the dopamine merry-go-round. So um, obviously, a lot of people will say, Maddie, I need my um, phone for my alarm clock buy an alarm clock they're not very expensive and alarm clock tech these days is amazing um, so buy an alarm clock um, and then also from there you can you can start putting other systems in your life to navigate your life without having to use your phone because we survived before phones existed um, and yeah I can get most days I can get to midday without needing to turn the phone on at all um, and in fact I, I sometimes turn it off at random periods of the day in order to, to repeat the process or try and reset my desire for dopamine.
1: Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for that, uh, that tip there. Um, where can we find out more about you?
0: Yeah, man. So, um, I've got, yeah, the show how to not get sick and die. So you can come and check out that podcast on any podcast platform. So we're on, on all and every, uh, platform. And then MaddieLandsdown.com is my website. And if you are a mother or, you know, mums that want to get healthy, I have a Facebook group called the busy mums collective.
1: Perfect. I'll include the links to all those in the description. Thank you very, very much for your time. I really enjoyed our talk.
0: Likewise, thanks for the invite.
1: Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, How Modern Medicine, the Media, and the Mundane Have Destroyed Our Health and How to Move Back Towards Optimal Health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter, Books. And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.